Welcome back to Global Data's podcast, Bankable Insights, bringing the most interesting people in banking and fintech and asking no-nonsense questions on what they're doing, why it matters, guided by data. I'm your host, Steve Walker. For our fifth episode, we're delighted to be joined by Gavel Littlejohn for what's part retrospective on how open banking came about, part current state assessment and part forward-looking view. Gavin was the founder of Money Dashboard, an early PFM in the UK in 2006 and CEO since 2015. He's got fascinating insights into how difficult it was to run a direct-to-consumer fintech proposition back then, how big banks behaved during the initial open banking negotiations, and whether the eventual shape and form of open banking was what consumers, banks, and new entrants really needed. He subsequently advised many different countries around the world on how they should approach open banking, and he's just got back from doing precisely that in Chile. Conversation runs to approximately 50 minutes, moving pretty chronologically through the topics as I've mentioned them there. Gavin, uh, welcome to the podcast. To start us off, can you briefly sum up your experience at Money Dashboard and how and why that led to your subsequent role in the open banking negotiations? Yeah, so Money Dashboard was a a money manager, budgeting tool and a whole range of other things inside. It was developed in the era where screen scraping predominated in pre-regulated space. I began working on Money Dashboard in 2005, putting it in context that sort of pre-Facebook pre-mobile app, I guess it was before many of the big data tools. And we had seen in the US, the big banks had gone first in terms of cross-market aggregation using the screen scraping model. So from 2000, 2001, you could log into any of the big banks in the US and see the account balance of the customer with their competitor banks. And the fintechs in the US followed the big banks, whereas in Europe, in the UK, the rest of Europe, the big banks decided that they would not develop the open banking aggregation cross-market opportunity. And as a result of that, when the money dashboard and a couple of other fintechs started into the space around about the same time as Mint and Wasabi and Jizio were developing in the US, we found that the the banks um, rejected the role that we had in the market for a few different reasons, one of which was uh, their perception of security, and the other was obviously the competitive angle, and the, and the third was that they made a, a claim, a quite consistent claim at the time, that the data relating to their customer belonged to them and not to the end customer. So... Uh, it was quite a difficult situation trying to raise capital in a market where on occasion banks would write to their customers telling them not to use money dashboard or other third party aggregators. And, and not only that, we had a, a, a situation simultaneously where the banks were sort of in, in the later years, round about sort of 2010, 2011, commenting heavily on social media when the customer asked questions via social that they shouldn't use those services. So, yeah, it was a a difficult market to maintain a business in and a very different market from the US where the customer had already been educated by the big banks that it was okay to do this before the fintechs arrived. So that was the experience at 
money dashboard. Can you tell us about your subsequent role at the open banking negotiations? Well, there's two different threads, uh, one of which was the financial services uh, regulation and the other was competition regulation. I made a, uh, with a couple of colleagues, organized a complaint to what was then called the Office of Fair Trading, which then merged with the Competition Authority to form the Competition and Markets Authority. The situation was that, you know, from an antitrust perspective, uh, one of the big banks had written to me at home telling me not to use the services that my company was offering. And I understood that it was a generic letter that went out to all their customers. And that appeared to be also saying that the customer could use an aggregation service if it was provided by them. But we discovered the same bank was using the same account aggregation underlay service Yodley, which we were using in the UK market for their North American operations, whilst Mm -hmm. telling their UK customers it wasn't secure. So that was a, a bit of a moment. And then through an introduction by one of our shareholders, I managed to get a, a conversation with the chief secretary to the treasury and the coalition government, and they'd been focusing quite heavily on something called the retail distribution review, which had required financial advisors to sell on a professional services basis rather than on commission. And that had led to a reduction in the number of regulated advisors in the market. And I had the opportunity to point out that in the absence of the flow of data to mobile apps, there was um, not really many other channels one could think of that could provide access to financial guidance, financial advice to the mass market. And the opportunity arose through the consequential discussions with the Treasury that we had two paths to explore. And we're going back here to 2013. One was an open finance regulation for the UK straddling all financial verticals. And the other was somebody in the Treasury had the idea of adding data access to the second payment services directive. So I was asked at that time to speak to our peer group, competitors, suppliers, small cohort of firms, no more than a handful that were in the market at the time, to discuss whether we wish to try and pursue the UK open finance route or the broader EU access to data but narrow scope just to payments data. And we agreed that on the basis that the UK new law was unlikely, that trying to couple it to the second payment services directive was the best route. And we understood that there was also some pressure coming in from Baffin, the German regulator, due to some access to disadvantaged people issues that they were experiencing. So we managed to eventually, after much in and out and writing it in and writing it out again. When the pen stopped moving on PSD2 in late 2013, data access was in. So that that was kind of a a pretty key moment in the development of what happened after that. So so data access is in, which seems like a big win, which was a big win. Keen to get to how would you characterise how some of the big banks behaved during the subsequent negotiations? Yeah, it'd be fair to say that the uh, the big banks were very concerned. When the ink was dry on PSD2, though, it became clear that something was going to happen. In the UK, at the same time, we had the ODI and Fingleton report on the potential use of APIs in open banking, which I think was 2014. And then in 2015, the Treasury convened something called the Open Banking Working Group, 
And it was through that that I think really one of my colleagues in the trade association that we had set up, FData, who, who was the CTO of one of Money Dashboard's competitors, Money Hub, who, who really pressed the case for standardized APIs, a guy called Dave Tong. And he and I and another colleague from Love Money had a conversation simultaneously with the now newly formed Competition and Markets Authority about the opportunity to use standardized APIs, uh, which landed well. And the Open Banking Working Group convened through the back end of 2015 with the banks and the fintechs and the government and regulators working together. And then that was published as the Open Banking Standard by the Treasury in February 2016. And the baton was then passed to the Competition and Markets Authority, who had been contemplating what they might do to reduce the concentration of market share in the UK current account for both businesses and small businesses and, and consumers. And the CMA wrote into their remedy a requirement for the nine largest banks in the UK to create an implementation entity to fund and govern the delivery of an open banking standard. And that, that's how it emerged. So the large banks then, uh, the, the, the CMA nine comprising six significant players in Great Britain and three in Northern Ireland. The six in Great Britain were five banks and one building society. And they then, in the summer of 2016, began the process through their trade association of setting up the implementation entity. And I was selected to represent the fintechs and my colleague Ian Major from Love Money Stroke One Path was given the task of looking after the other third party providers. So during those conversations, what were some of the implementation details that were eventually agreed on that changed maybe the shape or the form of open banking from how it might have been originally envisaged by the the fintech community, either in the scope of what was included or the, the standards and details for the implementation? At the beginning of the process, in the summer of 2016, a trustee was appointed, Andrew Pinder, But the order that gave him power wasn't concluded until, I think, February 2017. So for the first few months of the implementation entity, it was really very rapidly accelerated by the banks funding the the creation of a a group of people who were contracted in to begin work. And I think the initial challenge was that the governance wasn't clearly established at the outset. And because there was quite a lot of people hired in, I think maybe off the top of my head, something like 80 or 90 over the first three or four months, uh, we ended up in a situation where the various people that were working in the various work streams kind of cracked on. But before we had time to create a proper roadmap of all the things that needed to be in there to make it function. There was another another aspect, of course, which was this was new. Nobody had done it before anywhere. And there were a lot of things that everybody involved would do differently had they had their time over. Specifically, in the beginning, it was web to web. And of course, the world was moving app to app. So the, the ability to use the redirection model where the customer starts their journey in the third party provider role and then the consent journey then takes them 
through the API to the bank in this case to do the authentication so that they are who they say they are using the way they normally authenticate in digital banking. And then the authorization, which is the bit that says, and yes, I agree to this type of data being shared for this purpose, or in the case of a payment initiation, the same protocol. So that was, there was a whole bunch of stuff that were kind of missed out. And then the banks in late 2017, when the FCA opened, I think October 17, the FCA opened the applications for fintechs, we, we really only had three months from the period where they opened the application process to the go live date in January 2018. The APIs were untested. The banks found it literally impossible to create a test environment, which they were obliged to do by law, which was adequate. And it was completely different in the production environment to the test environment. So we ended up having to roll the whole thing out, the whole go live in a kind of managed rollout, which um, was designed to protect the customers from effectively putting customer data and payment initiation live when we really hadn't had a properly tested environment. So it was done very slowly. The APIs at the start were a bit flaky. Some of the conversations about scope and things that had to be done were really argumentative. And the user experience that sat above the technical implementation was highly varied and in some cases created material obstacles to the use of the product. There's one other thing I think that's really, really important here, and I guess it's the most fundamental lesson for any market looking at this. There was a live market. The live market used screen scraping in the pre-regulated model. Many of them had built hundreds of thousands of customers, certainly Money Dashboard had, and the transition to APIs was a bit fraught. What I mean by that is when PSD2 was written, it assumed screen scraping, not APIs. And the transition to APIs led by the UK from the open banking standards work in 2015 really had created a a problem for the European Banking Authority because they then had to begin trying to figure out how to create a secure ecosystem whilst preserving the innovation and competition parts of PSD2, but using a completely new technology. And the The fundamental shift was that in the screen scraping model, the data donor was passive. It was only the data recipient that built technical capability. In the API model, the data donor or the payments initiation donor had to build capability and provide access. And the question then was, if the banks, you know, throughout the European Union had been not particularly in favour, they could now build a capability that undermined the ecosystem by building poor APIs or poor user experience. But only in the UK, because of the role of the trustee and the implementation entity and the powers that were vested by the competition authority over and above the financial services regulation, did we get to a position where the API implementation eventually reached a satisfactory stage. In the rest of the European Union, banks didn't need to build an API. And if they did build an API, they could build it to any specification they chose. And even those that chose some of the standards agencies, like the Berlin Group or STET or some of the other European groups that were working on it, there's a vast difference between 
specification and standardization as we discovered. Some of the things I'd heard from people close to this of stuff banks had done to impair the service that third parties could offer. So changing APIs about the statutory two weeks notice, requiring online verification instead of one-time passcodes. And for context, of course, you know, in the UK, all the big banks were late to comply despite being given two years to do so. And then they were all given an extension, which I think many missed. And we continue to get repeat offenders. I think HSBC is one of the worst. Obviously, you know, on the other side, this was something that big banks didn't want to do. They resented the whole process. And even if you thought it was a good thing, you know, it's good to drag your heels to delay it so you can think through the, the new business models and carefully build the technical capability. But given where we are today, you know, with HSBC, with these repeat offenses, what do you think explains that? It's just the, the size of the organization and the many things they've got to do? Or do you think there's something more cynical going on? I had the opportunity to be in the steering group from the beginning of the process through to the conclusion of the process. So from the summer of 2016 to the summer of 2022, when the steering group was brought to a halt by the third trustee. During that period, the interactions with the banks changed. And I think if you were to look at it from the start of the process, their attitudes were uh, pretty homogenous. And by the end of the process, within the CMA9 and more broadly across the UK landscape, were very, very different. Some of the banks really embraced the process and having had technical difficulties, which they all had uh, to begin with, they started to move from sort of resistance to partnering with fintechs and then in many cases buying fintechs or going into deep relationships with them. You would not at the end of the process look back and say all the banks behaved with the same level of resistance. In fact, the opposite is true. Some some were absolutely converted to being really strong believers in it. The bank you mentioned, HSBC, uh, you know, I certainly didn't view as being in the column of most resistant. Um, they've mm-hmm. they've been an embracer of open banking, use it in their business model for lending at the moment. You go through an open banking journey to get credit from HSBC already, and they have done for a couple of years uh, or maybe more. The user experience differences at the start were pretty um, stark. The fintech community varies from people who kind of quite hard line and, and sort of say, well, there's no reason to have a poor quality API and that, you know, it's a deliberate thing. I don't really think in the latter stages after PSD2 went live that the banks weren't trying to do a good job because they were under really close watch, particularly the CMA9. You know, the big banks have been supervised and on occasion given direction. We had in the UK, when we moved to the financial grade API, the the FAPI standard conformance test tools. So in the beginning, it took quite a long time to integrate with the banks. There was a lot of toing and froing. More lately, the speed of integration for banks that have complied with that standard because of its high conformance prescriptive nature is very easy. And then if you look right through to the modern day, you know, we're talking 99.5.6.7 availability 400 milliseconds which is within the conformance limits for api response times both payment apis and data apis are functioning with full scope so yeah it was a difficult journey we got there in the end and many of the banks who had been concerned about the 
costs of implementation and various other things. Even right through, I guess the most recent major point of debate was the method of complying with the element of the competition authority element, not PSD2, that required the support of the sweeping use case between accounts. And uh, eventually we got to a position where we built that via API rather than using card on file or other methods, that direct debit or other methods that could have been contemplated. I think most of the results have gone in a way that is friendly to competition. Clearly, the 90-day reauthentication, which came through the European legislative and secondary regulatory process, was a major impediment to fintechs. The FCA have partially fixed that by passing the role of reauthentication or not so much reauthentication, but ensuring the customer wants to maintain the service every 90 days to the third-party provider role was a, a major step forward. Maybe not the customer experience with maximum flexibility that many fintechs were hoping for, but it's certainly going in the right direction. Of the banks that you mentioned that have been on the longest journey of conversion, who for your reading has embraced it the most and delivered the most value to their customers? If you were to look back through the steering group packs, there were times and places where various banks did things better. I think that West implementation was pretty consistently in the top quartile across most of the areas and got to live in most of the new API developments, I think maybe ahead of uh, some of the others. And, uh, you know, I think my observation is, is a requirement for some kind of senior level buy-in that this creates commercial opportunity. And as I said, whilst all the banks have created some kind of level of partnerships, some have invested significantly in making fuller use of their APIs, including where banks have legacy systems using their own APIs to ferry data around their own organization. And then the real value, of course, in open banking comes as a, as a recipient in the third party role. And of course, any bank, any regulated bank is already, without reapplying for anything, is already entitled to occupy that role. So if you're going to be using the APIs of your competitors, you want all the APIs to be of a high standard. And I think the UK process, whilst it's been a, a long and difficult journey, has led to a, a better outcome from a PSD2 perspective than in the EU. And I think the EU are now working to recognise that and, you know, in the subsequent regulations, will make adjustments to account for the fact of developing higher quality APIs. Just to wrap up the UK coverage in the past perspective. So overall, from the first five years of implementation, then, who do you think have been the biggest beneficiaries from open banking? Banks, consumers or, or new entrants? For the big banks, in addition to occupying the third party role, and for, for some of the smaller tier two banks that wouldn't be described as neobanks, there's been a process here of really rapid digitization. I heard from one of the banks that their deployment time of new code, and this was about three years ago, so it may have even improved since then, but had gone down from nine months to nine days. So they, they really went through the, the process of developing APIs and executing it and the pressure and the new technologies, I think, have been a underlay for a digital revolution inside the banking sector. 
So their own customer-facing capabilities are now technically every bit as good as the as the fintechs that are connecting to them. The fintechs, the third-party providers, have have had a, a mixed experience. The pioneers of the space uh, got damaged by the process, and the later movers that were digitally native in the API landscape, although they were frustrated about the process. They didn't have a huge customer base to be upsetting, and uh, they managed to get a, a lot of value, take on a lot of capital, and in many cases, build successful businesses. I think, and there's a few somewhere in the middle, but there's been a hell of a lot of innovation. The number of third-party providers coming into the UK ecosystems off, off the charts, hundreds, and the adoption of consumers well, it's an interesting thing about uh, consumer adoption or small business adoption. There are those that think it's not done well enough and those that can't believe how well it is done. We're currently sitting at, between small businesses and consumers, around about the 7 million mark. The growth of payment initiation is uh, now, um, well, the, the, the rate of growth in payment initiation is outstripping data access. But data access still has the most users within the ecosystem. On the small business side, there has been a very rapid adoption of open banking, particularly for data, particularly driven by the cloud accounting platforms. There are 4 million companies in the UK that are not dormant or semi-dormant, and slightly over half of them use a cloud accounting software. And I think about roughly a third of those using cloud accounting software have already connected all their bank accounts via open banking. So that's a very, very rapid adoption. And uh, if that trend continues, it really underpins a digital transformation in the small to medium business market in the UK. Let's talk about those adoption numbers. So we, we had that data, 7 million users in the UK and 1 million net new in January alone this year. And some people said that's a resounding success and some said, oh, it's a failure, only 10%. In, in the UK, our, our consumer survey data on openness uh, in the UK is 51% not interested at all. And then across all the other use cases, payments is highest at 20%, as you say. But across all the other open banking enabled services, consumer appetite is just at 10%. So otherwise, entirely consistent with actual adoption. It's not that it's under-adopted or over-adopted. It's being adopted as much as consumers want at 10%. You, know, you can say, uh, ask consumers what they want, and they'd say a faster horse, that Ford quote. But at a certain point, when do you stop pushing it on customers? You know, this idea of, oh, you know, you want it really. I've had long-standing debates with some of the folks in, in open banking, customer representatives. There were some machinations about creating a trust mark, which uh, representing the fintech community, I chose to reject. And, and there are two reasons for that. Firstly, consumers don't use open banking. They use the applications that connect to it. So just like the electricity in your home, what you want is shows to watch, cold food, iron clothes not interested in having electricity per se, because you can't use it. You only use the things that connect to it. So the fact that consumers don't know, or you know, if you, if you ask me, do you want to share your data, then no. If you ask me, do I want to uh, save money on my mortgage? Yes. Do I want a convenient application process? Yes. So the way consumers engage with this is not thinking about open banking or whether they share their data, but about three things, and only three. 
better value, improved convenience, or being included where they're not included. And we've already seen, for example, in the banking sector, the banks have been able to address, who've used open banking in the third-party provider role, they've been able to address a wider cohort of their existing customers with credit that they wouldn't previously have sold to because the credit file didn't underpin that product sale. So the other element here, going back to the trust mark, the firms in the ecosystem are regulated and the regulator has the power and the capability to investigate the suitability of companies through the authorization process and thereafter in supervision. A trust mark wouldn't have all of the capability to do that. So I think the best badge you can put on a company is that they're a regulated actor to perform the service. And then thereafter, what they do on top of open banking could be a myriad of things. It could be investment, it could be lending, it could be money management. It doesn't matter what that is because it's not connected to their regulatory license to get the data. But at least they know the company that's receiving the data, if they're a fintech, they've been adequately qualified by the regulator. And I think that's important. You're framing it there in terms of customer benefits, but also that account information services have seen much less uptake the payments account information, obviously to enable those budget management tools, a key use case for open banking, but many would agree adoption has been underwhelming. Innovation Finance had this paper a few months back talking of the key role that fintech could play in a cost of living crisis with, with these tools, but their long list of accommodations from banks and regulators, you know, the big banks should partner with them, regulation should be changed so that digital advice can be offered more easily and expand the coverage of open banking. But is it not similar, you know, with those budget tools that much like the state of adoption of open banking, that customers don't actually want to use them as much as a specific subset of fintech firms think that they should? Consumers want the outcome. They don't want the work. So if you give better value along with improved convenience, then it is easy to adopt and it's easy to maintain something that's giving you value, provided there's no regulatory impediment to doing that. The challenge with the original money management applications, bearing in mind that the business I created was one of those, the level of stickiness after you've got the first flush of excitement at seeing all the different elements of your money needs something on top of it, which is value creation. So seeing the money, seeing the insights does not take you to an outcome that's better. All it does is it Generally speaking, it gives you the fear of not having done things. And eventually, once the customer has seen that information, quite often it leads to, in the long term, a negative response of because you've not given the tools to do anything about it, it just makes you feel frustrated that you've got things that you know you need to fix, but no journey to fixing. So the, the modern interpretation of that, the more modern interpretation of that is that if I can be so bold, and a lot of people will hate me saying this, but financial education fundamentally doesn't work because human behavior, behavioral science, shows people and the way they behave is reasonably consistent. There's only a small percentage of people who've got the mental, I don't mean brain power, but the willpower and discipline to go on from the education and then manage money well. So what you have to do to be effective here is to use data science, clever interpretation of the customer's whole of market financial life and 
an appreciation of the products and services in the market that might lead them to better and play a role in, in getting them there. Not showing them what they haven't got and where they're not as good as they could be, but it has to go further to get you know a real value exchange where customers want to keep using it. To the points of going further to new sources of value, what are some of the reactions you've seen from regulators in other parts of the world that are looking to open banking based on the European case? Every other market has looked at what's happened with PSD2 and said, yeah, nice idea, good use of APIs, open finance looks interesting, narrow scope of just payment data doesn't seem very logical. So in other markets, you know, they have developed a much fuller spectrum of capability. I'm thinking here of Australia with the customer data right, India with the account aggregators ecosystem, Brazil with open finance, and now moving on to, you know, adding in things like health and other data assets that can be made available to regulated or accredited third parties. So what do you think the prospects then for open finance, you know, based on the conversations you had with regulators elsewhere in the in the world in the last couple of years? In, in the case of uh, the internalization of the open finance concept, the first thing to say is every country starts from a unique position and has a different puzzle to solve. The regulatory backdrop, the policy backdrop, the economic conditions of the people, the other services that are already in the market the development of policy that each successive government's aiming for to improve financial inclusion and value whilst ensuring the safety and security of the ecosystem is different. But there are things that can be looked at as reasonably consistent. And you know, if we take Australia, it started with a fundamental human right, customer data right, that the data subject had the opportunity to be able to digitally interact with their data and move it to a third party who was accredited in the ecosystem. That didn't start from a place of financial regulation necessarily, although financial open banking certainly was the first cab off the rank in Australia, but their scope uh, uh, straddles telcos, utilities and, and other aspects beyond financial services. They have, um, in Australia, used the same VAPI standard as we have in the UK. So the building on my electricity analogy, if the API is like electri- you know, the electrical system in your house, the plug and socket are the identity and registration layers, and the security profile is like the voltage. But the payload can be anything, like I said, a TV or a fridge freezer. And in the case of financial services or utilities or telephony data, it's just a different payload or a payment itself. They can all go through the same system. And uh, we've seen in Australia their adoption of the same standard we have in the UK, which was built from the FAPI working group of the OpenID Foundation, which is a global not-for-profit that created OAuth and OpenID Connect. And um, the Brazilians have gone in the same direction. They've adopted the same standard using a lot of the same ideas and capabilities that evolved in the UK. Their implementation as a result of that was faster, cheaper, and was able to manage a much wider scope. In India, they developed a account aggregators ecosystem with a centralized consents dashboard between the data donor and the data recipient, which is a really interesting model, kind of a hybrid between a bilateral API and a central orchestration there. 
I think that's been quite an interesting model. And I think most countries, you know, many of the big countries uh, that are active in this space have um, recognised the the approach that was taken in the UK from a technical perspective as being the right path forward. And I would certainly expect to see in the US, in Canada, in the European Union, in its next iteration, in Japan, and in many other markets across the world, including the rest of Latin America, I would expect to see that same technical standard emerge as the correct way forward, because it's pretty solid and uh, it works and there's software vendors that have got maturity and know how to do things. So the the speed of implementation, the the tightness of the security, the fine-grainedness of the data that you can share that gives the customer better control and the user experience are all um, markedly superior to what's happened in other models. And what would be some of the lessons of things that have gone wrong that could be improved looking at Europe and implementing elsewhere in the world? The implementation of PSD2 was undone by the journey into APIs because the regulators had no capability to appreciate or support it. There's been high levels of friction. Many regulators in, in Europe granted an exemption to having to support the alternative channel, the direct channel. So I guess screen scraping plus, as it's often known, which is just basically identity of the connecting party checking that it's a regulated party and then screen scraping from the bank's website. PSD3 will need to make sure that there's a much more homogenous and standardized approach to this, not to mention the the convenience or the security or the ease of connection, but the actual quality of the underlying API has been very mixed. And there's a real challenge here for regulators because they're typically underfunded and typically come from a position of supervising mis-selling of financial products, not supervising technology. But the way the world is moving, everything's technically delivered. And I'm a strong believer, where possible, in using technology measuring tools to measure technical performance. We've had this ongoing issue in the EU because there's been no central supervision. It afflicted the UK too, but, but not to the same extent, where the data donor or the payment donor says, yeah, we're fully compliant, everything's fine. And the, the receiver, the recipient company, saying to the regulator, oh, no, it's, it's not working. They've been down three days last week and mm-hmm. they're saying that they're up. And the answer typically lies somewhere in the middle. So having independent technology measuring tools, full transparency, publication of the available uptime, single source of truth, those are things which I think any market should look to. And in Europe, particularly as they extend scope beyond payment data, it's absolutely critical that they take on board that learning. Last question, Gavin. So looking forward, where do you think consumers are going to see the the biggest benefits and when, either from those existing bank processes that are enhanced or enriched by open banking or that more disruptive change of new business models that are made available by the technical capabilities of open banking and the and the mindset and culture change that it drives in the different markets around the world? It's difficult to hone in on a particular area, but I do think if I was to look at the payment initiation, there's a a marked opportunity here for faster payments and fast interoperable payment systems, both locally within countries and globally, to be able to orchestrate the flow of money more easily than using card-based payments. So 
I think there's a, a logic to open banking payments at some time in the future, displacing card-based payments. So that will be a significant advantage for merchants, but also there may be some convenience or loyalty capabilities that help end consumers. So that's one. Two, I think as we journey from open banking into open finance and a wider array of data assets become available, it will create the environment for delivering financial advice and helping customers who behaviorally won't change without somebody really doing it for them. So that's the second one. In terms of specifics, I mean, we've seen huge strides forward in improving financial inclusion through affordability and lending and using good data, really up-to-date data that, that looks at affordability above whether somebody historically was able to repay credit. And that helps people from a whole wide array of different sections of society who are excluded, for example, in the UK at the moment, whose data picture doesn't look what the banks are used to or other lenders are used to. And I do think that the the journey will unfold here where as we try and think about financial risk, there's a really good play here of algorithmically managing the customer's financial life and moving them to the best products and services that meet their needs in a risk balanced way. Probably as we get even more sophisticated in a way that a human advisor might struggle with. Those would be things I would look to in the future. There's a lot lot of focus in the fintech community at the moment on AI. So yeah, I think there's a, a number of opportunities which are pretty clear. And that brings us to the end of uh, episode five of the Bank of Insights podcast. Huge thanks to Gavin for joining today and for his insights. It's a unique perspective that he has from the front row seat for the initial open banking negotiations, the personal experience and pain even of trying to run a direct-to-consumer fintech new entrant in that far more difficult climate, and then the advice he's giving for countries emulating that open experience and trying to prove upon it elsewhere in the world. So thank you, Gavin. Look forward to speaking again soon. Thanks. Cheers, now. Cheers, Gavin. Cheers, we'll be sharing in terms of follow-up reading in the show notes for this podcast, links to Global Data's research on open banking, specifically within the banking and payments team, content on embedded finance, bank as a service, alternative modernization strategies more generally. We've got the flagship thematic report, but also the case studies for best practices, consumer survey data on adoption in different markets, and then executive survey data on anticipated areas of change and the budget allocated to these initiatives. Thank you, everyone, for joining, and all the best from everyone here at the Banking and Payments team.